0: parenting is not about making more people who look like us. It is about leading by example to make sure that every human is raised with the things that they need and deserve.
1: That was Sarah Bexell speaking in Washington, D.C. in early 2019 about designing a better mousetrap when it comes to planning a family. Find out what she came up with on this episode of the Overpopulation Podcast. Hi, I'm Dave Gardner, Executive Director of World Population Balance and host of The Overpopulation Podcast. Should family planning decisions be all about the parents, with no regard for the rights of the prospective child? Do two adults have the right to bring a child into a world that's a dystopian hell? Or do they at least have some responsibility not to? If the number of children you decide to conceive will have a direct impact on the quality of life those children experience, should that consequence be factored into your family size decision? Well, these questions are more relevant now than ever. You've probably not missed the news that today more and more young women and couples are questioning whether having children is the right thing to do in a world destined for some very tough times. With an unfriendly climate, just heading a long list of environmental crises. If that's been catching your interest, you'll find this episode of the podcast fascinating. In April of 2019, the Overpopulation Podcast was really pleased to be a sponsor of a forum titled Tackling the Population Taboo Creating a Sustainable Future. The forum was organized by Maureen Cohen Harrington, Special Projects Manager at the nonprofit Having Kids. Now, I've talked about having kids from time to time, and we even had the founder uh, as a guest on a couple of our episodes of the podcast. They do great work. We partner with them at World Population Balance at every opportunity. This episode of the Overpopulation Podcast is the first of several that will either share content from that forum or use presentations at that forum as jumping off points. The forum was my introduction to the very smart Dr. Sarah Bexel, visiting clinical associate professor at the Institute for Human-Animal Connection and director of humane education, both at the University of Denver. Sarah is trained in biology, anthropology, environmental studies, science education, and early childhood education, and she teaches sustainability at DU. Sarah is co-author of a new paper just published in the journal Social Change. Her co-authors are attorney and having kids founder Carter Dillard, social work professional Katharina graf huey and animal rights attorney Matthew Hamity. The paper's titled, A Human Rights Approach to Planning Families. Now, it's not tucked away behind a firewall, so I'll include a link to it in the show notes. I've invited two of the authors, Sarah and Katharina, to chat about the subject of the paper on this episode. If you spend any time advocating for humankind to achieve a sustainable population level considerably smaller than today's 7.7 billion, you're likely to hear time and time again that every man and woman on the planet has an unlimited right to conceive as many children as he or she desires. It's called procreative freedom or reproductive rights. Here's a bit of Sarah Bexel's presentation at that forum.
0: In a lot of places, families don't yet have access to choice. But where we do have choice, oftentimes humans follow what we call the isolation model. And this particular model is unsustainable, it's antisocial, and it's based solely on parental subjective choice. And in within this model... Parents have the choice to bring children into this world, but they're not thinking about the choices of their community and what their community needs or the choices of their own child, prospective child, and what they need. So the isolation model ignores the thoughtful and carefully constructed and limited right to found a family ensured by the Universal Declaration of Human Rights and instead creates an arbitrary model that ensures would-be parents the unfettered subjective right to choose the timing, number, and spacing of their children. It does not adopt a holistic and objective focus that includes the rights of prospective children and their communities. Most people continue to subscribe to this model because they mistakenly assume that the only other option is governmental coercion. The isolation model has largely been debunked as without a basis in ethics or law.
1: I had no idea we'd been following an isolation model and that it was so flawed. But thanks to the groundbreaking work of the team that authored this paper, there is hope for something better. Here's another moment from that forum.
0: We probably are thinking, yeah, we maybe need to think about how we bring children into the world a little bit differently. And oftentimes then we get stuck. So we know it needs to be different, but how do we do it differently? And how do we do it in a way that truly feels awesome to all of us? And that's what I want to present to you today is one possible awesome way to think about bringing kids into this world.
1: Let's find out more about that awesome way to make family planning decisions. Sarah and Katerina, thank you so much for joining me today. I'm pretty excited about the conversation we're about to have.
0: Thanks for having us, Dave. Yeah, thank you, Dave.
1: Your paper is about a human rights approach to planning families. Why is the paper needed?
0: Well, we felt that it was needed on essentially several fronts, and I'll mention some of the of the top ones. One is that our current Sort of approach globally to family planning is not centered on protecting the rights of children. Uh, it's also not taking into consideration the health of our planet at this point in time. It's also not taking into consideration um, vast inequalities that we see throughout every nation, not just from a sort of a difference between quote unquote developed and developing countries, but that even within every nation there's a growing inequality gap. And we also wanted to bring sort of a a critical and positive attention to the role of the size of the human population currently and the climate crisis as well as mass environmental deterioration.
1: Wow, so that seems like there was more missing than there was in place (laughs) in the current model. (laughs)
0: Yes, and we, um, throughout the paper, try to give great detail to all of those points that I just mentioned.
1: So tell me a little bit about the team that came together to write the paper. How did that happen?
0: Yeah, I think it was a a lot of luck and a lot of um, shared friendships. And so originally I was introduced to Carter Dillard, who is the founder of the organization, Having Kids, through one of his law school buddies that happens to teach at the University of Denver, where Kat and I are. And so then I mentioned uh, some of the work that we were doing with uh, having kids in a course, um, International Social Development, that Kat took with me, oh, probably three years ago. And she came up to me after class and said, wow, this is really interesting. I want to learn more. And then we started working together on some research for having kids and also in a work-study arrangement that we had through our university. And then this paper came forward and Matt and Carter had been working on it. And they said, you know, we would really like the perspectives that you two have to offer, one as women, and then also with, with Kat's really great background in social work and specifically in foster care systems in the United States and then with my background in wildlife conservation as well as early childhood development.
2: I would say it was really neat to see the whole team and the strengths that we brought. I remember hearing about this from Sarah and I was just blown away that we could talk about family planning in a new way instead of it just being about birth control or a policy and that we could get to the core of what we are trying to talk about is that we are growing at an alarming rate and how do we have this conversation where everybody can feel included and see their rights represented in this. And it wasn't just seeing human rights represented, we're seeing more than the human right. We're asking people to think about this and to talk about this and bring awareness. And so it was really a great experience working on this paper, having Sarah's background in environment, and then Carter and- um, Matt. (laughs) Matt, uh, with the lawyer perspective, and then me over here being like, nope, we can't say that. We can say this. Yes, we can say that. Because this is, in honest truth, such a difficult conversation to have without making people feel uncomfortable. And we completely acknowledge that, And wanted to go forward, taking that very closely in mind and um, making sure that we could have this conversation. And when there are people who want to push back, we can say, but here's why. You know, we've thought about this really deeply.
1: Yeah. And I want to give you, you know, really high marks for, I think you've accomplished your objective. I guess we're going to find out as the paper gets some publicity and uh, gets discussed, but I think you did a Heck of a great job anticipating the misassumptions and the you know the concerns that are all. Um, I don't want to say that they're not well founded. There's obviously lots of good reasons that this baggage has developed, uh, but it is baggage, and we need to find a way to get rid of this excess baggage. And I think that this paper does a good job of that. So congratulations. Thank you. Thanks, Dave. So in the paper you write about the you know, the existing family planning approach, and you've called it the isolation model. Tell me a little bit about that.
0: Yeah, this is a term that was really coined by the full group at Having Kids, and it has been published officially on the Having Kids website. And the isolation model is, um, the way that we explain it, is that it is sort of the current status quo of family planning and we see this across cultures within socioeconomic statuses you know this is a universal practice for the most part of course there are always exceptions in in every sort of, of of practice or norm in that the isolation model focuses on the subjective parental choice of whether and when and how many children they want to bring into this world. And so it's called the isolation model because it is the choice of sometimes even one parent or two parents coming together and saying, this is our right, this is our choice, when, where, if, how many, without the inclusion, to be frank, of even thinking about the rights of that prospective child and the full community into which that child will be coming into.
2: So what I really thought really interesting about us terming the isolation model was when I got to talk with participants and hear what they thought about the Fair Start model, which was um, a couple of groups that we did in Colorado, Denver, and Sarah did in China. And what was really fascinating to hear was when people talk about having children and think about that decision. I think we saw almost around 80, 85% only talked about it with their spouse or partner when they were talked about the reasons for having children, we would get answers such as, you know, I felt it was that time. My family wanted a kid, wanted a grandchild. Religious regions were stated. And it's interesting, I was having a conversation the other day talking about the paper, and somebody was like, well, you know, but these are reasons, you know, the, the uh, number one that came up, you know, we want to continue our genetics, pass it on. And I was like, yes, but those are all pretty subjective reasons, right? And I was wondering, and they said, well, people who choose to not have kids also, they're choosing it because of financial reasons, or they're choosing it because they like their lifestyle and want to continue it. How isn't that selfish? And I thought, well, they're not hurting anybody with that choice, though, you know, they're Choosing to still be a part of a community where they're giving back. So I think the isolation model is just a very interesting way of us talking about how we talk about planning to have children, who we talk about it, and then the further implications that it resonates with. And so it fits really well. People get it when they hear it.
1: So let me throw out a few ideas and then you can uh, smack me around if you cringe when I – Paraphrase it this way, I'm thinking, (laughs) (laughs) you can tell me I have to edit this out. (laughs) So our thinking has been very parent-centered, and you're really talking about adding to that much more uh, Mm child-centered thinking. And part of that, I think, is that it's become necessary because now we're living on a full planet where every decision to bring a child into this world it can't be done in isolation anymore because there, there's just no extra space. There's no extra atmosphere for the carbon footprint to, to disappear into. There's, As you know, we're bumping up against all kinds of environmental limits and planetary boundaries. So the decision 200 years ago or 500 years ago, there was less harm to be done maybe.
2: Well, Dave, I'm glad that you bring that up about – you know, if we keep having all these kids, where are they gonna go? And I think that more than half of the population right now lives in childcare deserts. So if we just start off with the fact that having a baby, only half of these children will even have a place to go for early childcare and education. Wow. So that's on one hand. And then we're already thinking about the kids that we have. And we have around 400,000 children every day in the foster care system, 400,000 children here in the US right now. So we're talking about bringing in more kids and I'm going, where are they going to go and then the second half of that when we're thinking about some of the things and i think this goes into you know fairness and democracy is closing the gap the wealth gap and the educational gap and we know now that brain science is supporting that the first thousand days of a child's life is where they're going to make the most connections where they're going to build their building blocks but we're also saying that there's not a place for them to go They're already all these kids that have missed out on those moments, and all of these children at the end of the day are going to be joining the workforce, you know, so if we don't start focusing on how we're going to plan for them accordingly and meet their needs, where is that going to put us down the line?
1: Yeah, of course, I have this uh, strong environmental focus on all the work that I do. Mm -hmm. And you've broadened my horizon there that it's about much more than just the environmental and sustainability considerations. It's about just the quality of life of a child.
2: And I think that quality is the resources. And that's why it goes back to the sustainability aspect of the climate and the resources that we're using. Like for, you know, my dad always told me like his proverb was the richer you got, the more things you needed to buy, you know? So I think that the more that you need, you know, the more that you grow, the more that you need. And when do we kind of say, OK, enough is enough or there's just not anything to take from anymore. And going back to just like the whole well-being of a child, um, I think Sarah can speak to this a little bit more of that. We know that being in nature, seeing you know trees in your day, walking around fresh air, it all brings up that quality of life for you. And even knowing, Sarah, can you tell the story? I think that you've said before, like even us knowing that there's a whale in the ocean, what that does for us and what a kid sees in a
0: book. Yeah, I often ask my students in classes to think about the fact that, you know, it used to be talked about that extinction is something that's going to take, you know, place off in the in the distant future. But what if we all just took a moment and just imagine that you wake up one day and your phone is ringing, it's your best friend that's calling to let you know that the last whale, the last giant panda, the last gray wolf and the last manatee has gone extinct. They're gone forever. How does that make us feel? You know, and I give students a moment to really think about what that impact would be on them to wake up and find out, oh my goodness, they're really gone. And what some studies are starting to show is that humans have an increased sense of loneliness as we start hearing about the extinction crisis, as we start thinking about the fact that really there's one dominant species that's pushing out the existence of all others. Psychologically, this is really traumatic for us, and we're just now starting to grapple with what that might mean for our species and our development. And of course, there's always the, you know, beyond sort of the mental health and ramifications of this, there's also just in the past 20 years since I've been out of school, our acknowledgement of ecosystem services. I think we've always known, you know, humans aren't that dense, and, and I think especially traditional ecological knowledge is founded on our understanding that Earth is our support system. It is our lifeline. It is our only lifeline. And now there's a whole body of science that has come out in the past few decades saying, these are ecosystem services. This is what they provide for us. Our air, our water, our food, all of these things can only be provided by the Earth. But with each additional person, those ecosystem services are more highly degraded and even deleted in some marginalized communities. And so the ecological crisis is looming large for us. We're seeing it, we're acknowledging it, we're feeling it both physically, especially in marginalized communities, and psychologically, we're starting to see implications also in the development of healthy children.
1: Sarah, you said something that just Stood out to me. You said, humans aren't that dense. <laughs> and I couldn't stop thinking about that. <laughs> I think you were talking about how many human beings per square uh, kilometer or something uh, like that, right? <laughs> I
0: actually wasn't. I was I was trying to give uh, us some, oh. some intellectual credits <laughs> there.
1: <laughs> oh, see, originally, I was going to take exception to that. And then I thought, no, that couldn't be what she meant. But <laughs> Then I came up with a good poster or a bumper sticker. The denser we get, The denser we get.
0: (laughs) Exactly. Yeah. And I think that speaks to our detachment from nature too, as we, you know, become such a highly populated and then sometimes by necessity, more urbanized and condensed dense, um, you know, in our population then we become distanced from the natural world. And I think psychologically also, and you know, we're seeing studies come out of children not really even understanding where their food comes from or making statements as to why does it matter if there's tigers in the wild when I can watch them on YouTube. As we become so distanced from nature, I think that that does add to a lack of, or I think I should say, rephrase that, loss of our cognitive abilities to recognize and register on a daily basis that nature is our life support system, that we have to have it.
1: I was going to ask you to just sort of tick off the key points of the human rights approach. I think we've sort of wandered through most of them, but maybe for the benefit of the listener who is multitasking and isn't paying that close of attention and isn't taking good notes, maybe we should still go ahead and do that. Do you think you could? Kind of just give us a Cliff Notes summary of that?
0: Yeah, so our model is really promoting the fact that we feel, and you know, we really want people to punch holes in our paper and let us know anything that we've done wrong or that we're forgetting. But really, what we are putting forward is that we feel that children need access to five key elements. And those are, and I'm going to actually say them very simply, but happy to, Kat or I both can talk more about each of them individually, Dave. Okay. So one is that all children need to have access to a sense of well-being. Another is that all children brought into this world need to enter this world on a fair playing field, not based on Sort of economic standing of their parents, but that each child coming into this world should be brought in again on a fair playing field. That each child also needs to have a sense of and live within a fair democracy. And another is that all children deserve access to nature and a thriving environment. And last of those five things is that all humans need access to what is called um, continuity. So every person should have the right to bear children as a fundamental human right but that also that that level of continuity has some limitations and even has put forth in the universal declaration of human rights that all of the rights that are put forward in the universal declaration of human rights should be obtainable by all humans within reason and in this case within reason in terms of that your obtaining of those rights doesn't then limit somebody else's access to those rights. And that's sort of something that we're bumping up against now in terms of human population. So now, as you were mentioning just a few minutes ago, when it was 200 years ago or 500 years ago, if a child was born into this world, they weren't then limiting the rights of another child to access to resources and access to well-being, access to fairness, all these things that we're outlining. Now, with the birth of every single child, we are actually limiting the rights of other children. And as Kat was really mentioning earlier, and I just wanted to emphasize again, with all the children who are already here already here, like those children in our foster care system right here in the United States that don't have access to those things, how are we going to make sure they continue to have that access that they deserve?
2: I think that you went through them pretty well. I love that we really talk about improved continuity from the parent side and that I don't think that there's a parent out there that would say that they don't want better for their child, you know? but when you say that what does that mean and how do you make that possible and parents have a part of that decision making you know they should feel empowered by that question how do i make my child's life better after me how do i you know as a real or biological caregiver of a child How do you ask that question and what do you offer? Depending on the age that that kid comes into your life as well. So then it makes you have to ask yourself a couple more questions. You know, you as a family unit, what can you do to not impede on other rights and then the community and then your environment? And those questions are fascinating that we've seen in the Fair Start model. Is parents doing something, you know, like this is tangible. They're doing, you know, like they think, okay, well maybe having a kid, we will pick up new recycling. Maybe we'll do solar panel. Maybe we'll, you know, really try to get hand-me-down clothes. You know, like there are tangible steps to take instead of just keep walking this path that we've already been told, buy bigger, buy more, buy new and not thinking about the repercussions of that. So that's what I think of improved continuity. And I think well-being, I think that one just goes back to what Sarah was talking about, just the the behavioral effects that we see happening with how kids are raised. I mean, if we're talking about well-being, we want to give those kids as much attention and time as we can. And you, like, let's be honest, you can't do that when you have maybe three, four, five kids. That's just, time is not infinite. There's only so many hours of the day. And what we're seeing, I think now, is children being on tablets and phones and in front of TVs. And we've seen that so often. And that, I think, shows that parents are already taking on so much. We see two-parent working homes as the norm now. So where are we carving in that time to make sure that the children's well-being is being met? And then I, I do want to just go to democracy, because I think that that's just such a big one that sticks out for me. that. This is just plain science that, and math. The more people you put in the pot, you're going to dilute the entire voice. And I uh, love in, that we think about representation and I think there's this issue has to do with politics so well that even right now as we're represented, we would need almost what, 2,000 representatives in the house to actually represent all of our populations means in the U.S. right now. like That's even crazy to think about. Oh, my God. They would never get anything done.
1: <laughs> I think I've heard an even bigger number. We actually oh. did an episode about that of the yeah. overpopulation podcast. So.
2: Oh, it was 7,000, um, wasn't it? Maybe it was 7,000. I think China right now, right, China has around 2,000. We would need yeah. 7,000 people.
1: Yes. I know it was pretty staggering, astonishing <laughs> number. Yeah.
2: Voting for 7,000 people. <laughs> <laughs>
1: I would do it that. I do. But yeah. So, uh, I'm tempted to just go, duh. I mean, why haven't we been talking about this? Or has there been some voice somewhere tucked away in some corner that hadn't been getting any attention that's been espousing this kind of much more child-centered thought process?
2: It was very interesting going through the research and even hearing from people that this isn't a new idea that I think it was, what, around the 1960s, 70s, Sarah, that this conversation did come up and was started, but it quickly died away. There was an interest in that, and I think Sarah Do you know what I'm
0: referring to? I think you're talking about, yeah, I mean, people, you know, especially with Paul Ehrlich's book and whatnot, you know, this is really your area of work, Dave, you know, that people started talking about the population crisis and multiple other things kind of coalesced at that time, you know, with Silent Spring being published as well and the limits to growth studies and whatnot. And so people started, you know, talking about, at least at that point, I remember my parents talking about the replacement theory. And so that, you know, every family should just have two children to replace those parents and whatnot. And then in terms of, you know, this particular approach to family planning, as far as we know from the research that we did from this paper, nobody else has talked about it in this way. And I don't know if you would agree, Kat, but we read a lot of papers and a lot from philosophers to biologists to ecologists to lawyers, you know, and a lot of people are writing in this area, but nobody putting it together in this way to create the, what we call the fair start model.
2: Yeah. And I think what you're saying is like putting it in the way that we're centered around the child's rights yeah. and having somebody ask that of the children before they're born, asking parents to discuss this, asking them to discuss it, not just with their spouse, but with their friends, possibly with their community. Like this is already like, when I spoke to people about it, their faces were like, oh yeah, I could do that. Why have I never thought that I could talk to my parents or my friends or my community? And once again, I just want to go back with, I felt like they felt empowered by that you know, that siloed isolation model has made people think that this is a private matter, Yeah, but it's yeah. a private matter that becomes not so private. <laughs>
1: after a while. I guess it's time has come. I mean, part of that is, as you know, there are groups of women who are starting to get together and have conversations and share their their thoughts and their questions about it. And I just think it's a more evolved conversation. It is a different conversation than was being had in 1968, 1970, when a lot of the environmental movement was pretty engaged around the overpopulation subject. You know, it might have That conversation might have continued instead of kind of being buried for a couple of decades if it had been as uh, just as intelligent and complete as this conversation we're having today is. So thank you for that.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I think, you know, just to add, you know, to what Kat was just saying about some of the research that we did a couple of years ago, you know, she did interviews in, in Denver and I did in Chengdu, China, with young couples who had either just had their children, were still planning their families, maybe had just become a couple. And it was really so wonderful for us to have the experience that we both had, working literally on other Sides of the planet with two, comp- you know, quite different cultures, and finding the same response when we would share with them, this is what the fair start model is, you know, and the with a three prong approach to, first and foremost, the child's rights, the community's rights, and also the parents' rights, and have people in both countries overwhelmingly say why aren't we talking about this? Why aren't we having these conversations? Why have I been made to feel that this is something that I only talk with my partner about? And so I really think like you were, I think, alluding to Dave, the time has come. I don't think people want to make this huge and arguably most, you know, important decision of their lives under the isolation model anymore. They want to have these conversations. They want to feel included. They want to feel supported. It's terrifying to bring a child into this world. So why are we asking people to do it in private? So yeah, we're really excited and really welcome people into this conversation. And I hope folks will reach out to us.
1: Very nice. Yeah. I want to share a couple of passages from the the paper that really just, I just wanted to get out my highlighter. And so uh, (laughs) I want to share a, a little bit, but then give you a chance to comment on them if you have any comments. So here's one. It is only through this upside down moral framework that a 29 year old woman was unable to find a doctor willing to sterilize her in accordance with her desire not to procreate. Whereas a child bride received a IVF treatment at a major university hospital. Why are we more concerned about an adult who chooses to be sterilized, thereby affecting the welfare of zero children, than the millions of unplanned pregnancies that result in childbirth each year, where another life is permanently created and, more often than not, repeatedly placed in harm's way? Very well said.
0: Yeah. I have thoughts about it, you know, um, but I, I want to say that this is half baked. And I think it's important for Kat to contribute to this too. But to me, that really speaks of um, our male dominated society. And again, this is half baked. This is not my area of expertise to think about, you know, gender roles and, and whatnot. But I, uh, and it also speaks to machismo a little bit, you know, in, in the right now. We still live in almost every single culture on earth in a male-dominated world, and to me this is really talks to the point of that both of these women in both of these situations are being belittled by the system, again, that tends to be male-dominated at this point in time in human history. You, um, with the first woman saying, no, you silly woman, at some point in time you're going to change your mind. Mhm totally belittling her choice, and with the other, Child Bride, also saying, you know, you will have children for me, and it needs to start right now. And so, that's what that passage says to me, and I'm also open to hearing, you know, others' thoughts about that.
2: Yeah. I mean, I think that you said it really well, So that I would say the same thing, it comes down to choice, which really comes down to what we're talking about with the Fair Start Model, is people having the ability to make choices if they want to have kids or not. But there is a conversation that's overarching and trying to choose when and whether to start a family should be made by an outside source instead of it being a conversation than people legitimately having their rights respected. You know, I think the fair start model, we focus on the child centered right, but really we're talking about human rights overall, that everybody should be able to have this conversation and feel safe to make a decision. I think that it really is frustrating. And one of the reasons I came onto this project was just um always hearing you'll change your mind you know if you don't want to have kids like just wait just think about it you don't know it's like well we are it just blows my mind we're just we're such a more educated you know society and whole what we can get from the internet you know what you used to have a library we could read a certain books and now we can look at like 15 articles, published journal articles in an hour. It's just, it's diminishing of our intelligence and that we can be forward thinkers. And it's really sad though, that it's a child riot and that kind of breaks my heart because she's not getting a say in that. And that goes right back to what we were saying is that that child-centered right isn't being upheld here.
0: Yeah, and there's two other things that this passage brings to mind to me is also that it you know when i read you know about these kinds of things happening it also you know as a woman myself makes me feel like there's a large contingency that feels like that's the only reason i'm here you know that that I'm a woman, I have a uterus, so that's what I'm supposed to be here for, and that I don't have anything else to contribute to, you know, our society. And then another thing that that makes me think about, and this is a a very recent occurrence, and I think it happened earlier this year, when AOC may, I think she tweeted this, I'm not a big Twitterer, but I thought that this was a really apropos tweet that she made very recently, was something along the lines of, if men were the ones who got pregnant and then more often than not were burdened with the raising and the nurturing and paying for that child, there would be, you know, a family planning clinic on every corner, just like Starbucks. (laughs) And I thought, wow, yeah, that pretty much sums it up right there.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Well, and speaking of uh, putting your uterus to work, just in recent... (laughs) Just recently, uh, Tanzania, Iran, and the United States come to mind as places where political leaders have basically said that. You women, get busy and put your uteruses to work. Or what's the plural of uterus? Uteri? (laughs) Uteri? (laughs)
0: <laughs> I think it would be, I don't know. That's a great question. Good. In all my biological yeah. training I um, haven't heard the plural of uterus.
1: <laughs> but there is there's all this concern about the aging of the population because fertility rates have come down in most of the world and are continuing to drop in a lot of cases and so the economists especially and the political leaders two groups that I would advise our listeners to Uh, pay as little attention to as possible, really, (laughs) in in this subject at least. They are wringing their hands about this birth dearth, and they want women to get busy uh, incubating New workers, new consumers, new taxpayers, uh, because they're concerned about the devastation to the economy. What's going to happen when the Ponzi scheme is not still in play, where we have more young people with each generation who can pay in to the pension plans, Social Security, and all that, and support this aging population? So, related to that, well, first of all, let me just ask you, you know, give you a chance to comment on that.
2: I think that goes back to what we were just talking about, too, of how, as women are more informed and have more access, they are making a different choice, and it's naturally happening, this decline in fertility. One of the reasons we did the research in Colorado was because of the Colorado Family Planning Initiative, which offered LARC at a very substantial level, and they saw a decline of almost like 50% of people having children here.
1: LARC being? A long
2: acting reversible contraceptive. Uh-huh. Yes. And I think that that pushback that's coming from politicians from you know the economy saying have more kids is them um, reacting to us getting smarter and being able to have more choice. And that's interesting, right? Like, wow, I actually can make this decision on my own when and where I want to do this. And yet now we're having this big push that says, Oh no, you're hurting us, you're you know, this is bad for the economy, have kids, you're so selfish, which then comes up, you know, and you're like, Wow, that's really interesting, you know? Mm-hmm. What we know about when you do offer higher education and access to reproductive contraceptive that we see the rate go down. What's that saying? What where's that side of the story? Why are we only hearing this one side of the story? That's pushing us to make babies.
1: So this concern about uh, having a larger portion of the population being over 65, being in that kind of retirement years, although... uh, a lot of people aren't retiring at 65, but the term dependency ratio comes into the conversation and where they're talking about kind of really a, it needs a reset because most of the economists, when they talk about dependency ratio and they're talking about demographics, they're talking about the ratio of working age population to the number of people who are in retirement age or, or vice versa. That's the dependency ratio. And I think you addressed dependency ratio a little bit in the paper. Do you remember that section and what you were trying to get across?
0: I actually don't remember us Pop quiz. writing about that, and it's you know it's something that we one of the aspects of in the paper that we do talk about is flawed economic models, and I don't know if that that takes us maybe in a in a different direction, but when we you know, most global economic models are dependent upon growth. And so I think that's that knee-jerk reaction that we're hearing from politicians and and people in, in leadership positions is, oh gosh, we have to keep growing. And the only way to do that is, you know, to continue to have a large labor force. So we need to continue to have human beings being brought into this world to continue that growth. And now what we're seeing is obviously we're hitting up, and you mentioned this at the start of our podcast, Dave, of these tipping points or thresholds in terms of just how much human activity can continue to happen and have the earth still be a habitable and, and healthy place for us. And so some economic economists, I should say, have come in saying, okay, our current economic models of continued growth, continued growth in GDP and whatnot those are flawed because they make the assumption of infinite resources upon which that growth can happen. Mm -hmm. And so some of the models that are being introduced to us are things, and you've probably talked with these folks, you know, are are the steady state economists that are saying that we need to rewrite all of our economic models and create a steady state economy. But now the degrowth folks that are talking about, you know, slowly decreasing the overall human impact, including our economy, it's not just the economy that maybe needs to scale back, or even now the, the well-being economies. And that's a really exciting movement um, and even is being adopted in several nations, primarily by nations who are led by women, just had to throw that in, um, in looking at not just measuring the health and the wealth of, of a nation based on growing GDP, but how well are our people? How healthy are they? How mentally you know, fulfilled are they enjoying some free time? Are they enjoying time with families? Do they have access to a healthy environment? Can we change that focus towards GDP to something that's focused on well-being? I also
2: wanna, thinking about this section, I put a note for myself and it was universal income. And I think when we're thinking about this question, like you were just saying, you know, that you wanna bring in people so they're able to put in for the older population. It's funny, the people that are arguing, and this is a general statement, uh, arguing for more children, would I would say most likely not argue for universal income. And my question would be for them, do we pay now or do we pay later? So we could right now, you know, help people with social security that are getting older and limit the population that's coming in because that population though, is also going to need either some kind of social security or what we're really hearing is universal income because there are not gonna be enough jobs for everyone, that's just the fact that we're seeing it right now. I know that uh, labor of employment just like released their numbers and it's kind of staggering, there's no new jobs and if anything else, we're also seeing artificial intelligence and I know that this goes off into a way different part (laughs) of the conversation, but my question is, pay now or pay later? Dutch, you're not gonna get around that. So why not think, this is like asking people to be future thinking and I know We are not the best with delayed gratification, and we think of policy in two terms, four terms, get reelected. But I'm like, okay, well, if we go ahead and we have all these new kids, they will also be adults that need to go into a workforce. They will also be aging and have retirement at some point. We're going to then, what, make another two billion people? No, we can't sustain that.
1: You've touched on this a little bit, the fact that you can't go a day without hearing about this uh, growing wealth gap, that we've got this huge disparity between the lion's share of the population who aren't materially as well off as they used to be. And and I think everybody knows what we're talking about when we talk about the wealth gap. How does this model address that? How does this reduce the wealth gap? Or, Or does this have an impact on that?
0: We hope that it does. Yes, absolutely. And and a lot of it then boils down to really thinking about, you know, sort of that fairness aspect to the fair start model is what we're advocating is can humans sort of change their mindset to really focus on how we bring children into this world on a fair playing field. And in order for that to happen, everybody's going to have to cooperate and work together and pool resources. And not just financial but even that access to clean water to healthy food sources all of those if we pool those resources and if the whole all of the human community starts to think about the fact that if i want to prepare you know to bring a child into this world and make sure that they have access to all of what we think and i think every human being would agree is what every child should have access to, those five key elements that we talked about earlier in the podcast, then everybody's going to have to cooperate. We're going to have to create and pool our resources so that we can can do this in a fair and reasonable way. And in order to do that, we can't have just rich people and poor people and rich people giving to the poor. We've been doing that for a long time now and it's obviously not working. How do we get parents to cooperate?
1: I should have challenged that earlier and asked if you were implying with that part of the human rights approach that only people who are well off should have children because their children are born into a world where they have access to a lot of those things. That's not what you're saying, but I think we need more of an explanation of how this cooperation, how do, how do we get there? What does that look like?
0: we talked about this a lot. This is something Kat and I used to sit at that time. I literally had the, an office the size of a closet. This will make Kat and I both laugh and reminisce. Um, and we would just sit there and actually talk about this part. I think this is one of the parts that Kat and I used to get stuck on the most and, and challenge our co-writers on this too. And we would push back and say exactly what you're asking us, Dave, but how do we make this happen? Because we wanted it to come to fruition as quickly as possible. We both work in a graduate school of social work and we, constantly about the suffering of humans and especially of child suffering all over the planet. How can we hurry this up? So I think for that I would almost turn it back on our listeners and say, and and Kat, you know, please contribute to this. We want to know how to make this come to a reality. If this is something that first and foremost, we want people to read our paper, read about the fair start model and decide, is this something that we want to help these folks to advance? Is this something they want to participate in? And then we need to, as a community, as a global community, but I think we need to start small and locally, come together. And, you know, Kat and I used to talk about, is it parent meetings? Is it, you know, gatherings at churches and community centers? Is it, you know, everybody getting together in a bar and chatting about these problems? Those are some, some questions that I don't think we have a lot of clarity around. And then one of the things that Kat and I have always dreamed about is finding a pot of money so that we can literally start actually writing what we've been calling sort of playfully a workbook you know like what are the steps that need to happen in order to create these sharing communities um, these cooperative communities that's kind of where we're at and and cat jump in if i'm forgetting anything that we've talked about sure
2: (laughs) I think definitely having those conversations, and even when I've had these conversations with friends and family, there's always somebody in the group that says, but I can afford to have three, four kids, like, why should, you know, I have to only have one or two? And then the second part of what we do mention in the Fair Start model is sharing resources. And that's where you start to get this like, hands up, like, well, no, I worked for it, it's mine. you know, not going to pass this on to somebody else's kid. I think that, you know, for me, in practical thinking, how that looks is quality, affordable child care in the beginning, because we do know that wealth gap can be closed with the education gap. And what we see with wealthier kids is that they're going to have access to education a lot earlier and a lot more quality education. And if we could find a way that we're asking parents who are wealthier to say that we want quality, affordable education for all children, maybe that could be a place to start. And maybe that would be a place that goes back to the continuity we're talking in the Fair Start model, that I can't imagine that there's a parent out there who has a kid or looks at a kid and says, I don't want better for them. No, don't want it. You know, I would be really surprised with that. And if there was a way to (laughs) if there was a way to make that shift of resources feel like it was having a large enough impact and felt more spread out, I would, in my world, see that way of how wealth could be redistributed to be shared among smaller families. And that if your kid's sitting in a classroom where there's another kid that's just as up to par, every kid is winning in that situation, you know, and going to a school where they can all contribute at the same level and they can all be competitive for jobs, that makes it better for everyone.
1: Yeah, you're making me think about it. The very thing that these economists and political leaders are wringing their hands over is actually a, a huge part of the solution that if if we continue this uh, Shrinking of family size and shrinking of the portion of the population that are children, that gives us the resources to take better care of those kids. And we're talking about poor families having fewer children, and we're talking about rich families having fewer children, so that all those resources that are, I don't want to say squandered, but that we're having to put into taking care of the child number three, child number six, child number nine we could put them into taking care of child number one, maybe mm-hmm. child number two in a few cases. I mean, the resources would be phenomenal.
0: Yeah, yeah, it would free up the needed resources so that every child can have access to them.
1: Yeah. Makes sense. So that was a great accidental segue into really kind of the what I think needs to be our, our final Topic And that is just, you know, and I think you already given me the answer, but let's explore that a little bit more. So what are the next step? What needs to be done? How do we make this happen? Do you have other ideas that we haven't floated already in this conversation?
0: yeah so i think you know one of the first and foremost we want to get this information out so dave thank you for giving us this platform to share and i think that to be totally transparent and honest there's going to be a little bit of time right now to get the information out help, you know, allow the public to digest it and to let it sort of simmer in their minds and then provide us feedback. We need to build almost a social movement in this area to open and welcome people into this conversation. So that's, I think, our our most immediate next step is welcoming people into this conversation, having that conversation, and getting participation.
1: So I'm going to have to be patient. We're going to have to wait a couple of weeks before we see results?
0: Maybe a couple. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, We just have to get a lot of people to read our paper. And then I think we also are working on a next um, sort of follow-up paper that's on delayed parenthood and that also being you know, a key contributor to all of this is allowing women, you know, to have access to education, access to developing their career, access to, you know, contributing to society in multiple ways, and then maybe choosing if and when they want to contribute to society by creating another human, or perhaps adopting a human. And so that will be another paper that will be coming out shortly, we hope. Uh, And then in terms of the Fair Start model, uh, you know, it could be that we create that workbook. It could Be that we create similar to the conceivable future group where they have house parties where folks come together and have these conversations. And Kat, what do you want to add to that in terms of, of thinking about next steps?
2: Yeah, I think that was a great overview of like fair starts,
0: next steps. And I
2: would also add that there is a thought process that's taking change already that's happening, you know, like I think. I'm hopeful because I do see fertility rates declining on their own naturally, right? Like there's something that's already happening. There's something that's already in the air where people are thinking about this. And even if you have certain people screaming an opinion at you, it goes back to what I said earlier, we have access to a lot of information and education and for people to go out and look for it. And I think that, you know, even for me, I just heard, and I know it's been going on since the Obama administration, but the Juliana versus United States, which is about um, them filing suit that the government violated future generations constitutional right to live in a climate system that is capable of sustaining human life. And that one's picking up momentum right now. There are several pieces going on right now that are picking up momentum and we're gonna see them come together. And I hope that the fair start model And hearing from people and their input of how we can, you know, contribute to that and make an impact to what's already happening. It's exciting.
1: You worked with Carter Dillard of having kids on this paper and you're both listed on the website of having kids and of course we're going to include links to uh, everything valuable that we want you to have access to so be sure to check the show notes for links but i wanted to ask you to about your role at having kids and what you see going forward just with that organization what do you hope to be doing with Carter
0: Yeah. So Carter's become a great friend and colleague to both of us. And, you know, having kids is an interesting organization. You know, Carter sort of likens it to the Occupy movement. We're all there on a volunteer basis. We're all working towards these goals that we all with our different backgrounds and areas of expertise that we bring to it as well as our skill sets are working together towards um, really creating sort of a more humane presence on our planet through protecting of child rights protecting the environment protecting other species and so yeah that's kind of our relationship with having kids and i think we're both committed to helping them grow in their reach and in their capacities through our skill sets
2: Absolutely, I think that it is really innovative that they're allowing us to raise the Fair Start model in our own fields and take it, instead of it just being dominated by one sector, one field of education, um, field of profession. I think for me, continuing to advocate it here in Colorado with groups that work around childcare and childcare rights is what I'm doing with it. I also just think that the fair start model for me and why I want to continue on with this is that I hold it in the back of my mind with all the decisions that I make in all of my work areas is always keeping this holistic idea of how we can better society and I love to say the more than human world benefits as well. And it's interesting to bring that perspective in a room a lot of times when it isn't there yet. And so I hope to continue to do that with the Fair Start model.
0: I think one thing that really drives me in my career as well as my personal life is also trying to navigate finding a way to create safe places for young people to have these conversations. You know, I think that many people, I can't tell you how many students, even if we're not talking about, you know, sort of population and its impact on the environment or on gross inequalities, all of these things. Sometimes I have students come to me or even say in front of the entire class, you know, that they feel such tremendous pressure to have children once they're done, because my students are all graduate students, you know, that that's the next step. I'm going to have this pressure and my mom's already asking me, when is the child coming? You know, when are you going to get married and all these kinds of things? And some of these young people have already made the decision or they're really, Wanting to have these conversations about, you know, childbearing and about all of the pressures that that brings. Uh, And so how do we create and how do we sort of bring back what I've heard, at least from my parents, was a popular topic back in the 60s and 70s was to talk about this problem. How do we make it okay to have this conversation again? And so that's what another thing that I hope, and I think the Fair Start model opens up for people because it feels so safe. It feels so wonderful and warm and rich and nurturing. There's nothing scary about it. So I'm hoping that that's something that we can contribute to the world is creating that safe place.
1: Well, thank you. Thank you both for doing that. That's such an important thing that this movement really needs, so... I'm pretty excited about it. What do you think? I'm curious. And Sarah and Katharina are both very interested in feedback on this proposed new approach to planning a family. Email your thoughts to podcast at org. I'll be sure to pass them along to the authors. You can also comment on the World Population Balance Facebook page. I like to include listener feedback in every episode of the podcast, so I'll share responses to this episode in the next episode of the Overpopulation Podcast. For now, here are a couple of share-worthy comments from the past several weeks. Following episode 25, titled Too Nervous to Discuss Overpopulation, we got a nice note from Robin Maynard, director of Population Matters. Great podcast, Dave. All the best from us over here in the United Kingdom. In response to episode 26, Playing Whack-A-Mole with Pro-Growth Bias, Roland emailed, Economic growth based on fossil fuels in the countries with the 10% richest people on Earth is really playing whack-a-mole with pro-growth bias. Well, that's it for this edition of the Overpopulation Podcast. Be sure to visit worldpopulationbalance.org to learn more about how we can solve world overpopulation. There, you can sign the Sustainable Population Pledge, listen to all of our podcasts, get on our email list, and become a supporting member. Make a donation to support our vital work. You can also find World Population Balance on Facebook and Twitter. Please recommend the podcast to others. I'm sure you know some people that you'll want to share this episode with. And be sure to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, and that way you won't miss an episode. Until next time, I'm Dave Gardner, reminding you we know how to solve overpopulation. Let's get on with it.